Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I was, had Remy the other day. I think that's when I got this. Remy is two, and he loves to dance. He just loves to dance, and he's like, he's like, at two, it's like, where did you get those moves? And so my daughter has been sending me these uh, videos of him. So I wanted to dance with him in person, right? So I'm like, what music? So I put 70s rock and roll. You know how you can do it on YouTube? I put that on. And, you know, we're dancing. I'm like, wait, this is saying highway to hell. I don't want to do this with my two-year-old. So I'm switching songs, and I'm like... Uh, you know, we start dancing. I'm like, no, this isn't good either. And then I go, and it's like the Hotel California. And I'm like, no, no, I'm done. <laughs> so then I'm like, is there any Christian rock and roll music? So I, you know, on YouTube, there's a site. It's Christian rock and roll. And so now we're dancing. And all of a sudden, I'm overcome by the reality of God and his goodness. It's like the lyrics are penetrating me. You know, God is good. God is there. And I'm like, Whoa, now I'm really dancing, and so is he. And it was just like, oh my goodness, Lord, I'm surrounded by lies. I am constantly surrounded by lies. I mean, you can't get in an elevator without hearing the lies of this world. You can't shop at a market. You can't go out to dinner. Do you ever wonder why they're always got music going every place you go? And you, know, and you wonder why you have such weird thoughts you know, it's because you've been listening to Elvis Presley while you waited to pay your electricity bill. It's just crazy. I, I think about all the pretense and all the, the lies. We read fiction. There's nothing wrong with fiction. I love a good story. But sometimes that gives us unreal expectations about how our life should go, and especially how our husband should behave, right? I mean... It, Dawns on us, you know, I did not marry Mr. Darcy. We watch fiction and movies and we watch these series on TV and we get so involved in the lives of people that are not real, right? I remember after my mom succumbed to dementia, I'm thinking about what's a safe program to watch with her on, you know, television. So I'm like, Perry Mason, right? It's black and white. I mean, if ever you don't feel like you're, you know, involved, I'll watch Perry Mason. So I put on Perry Mason, and my mom, so there's this person on the, on the witness stand, and my mom jumps out out of her chair, and she's like, liar, you are lying. And I'm like, going, okay, Perry Mason's not safe. What can we watch now? But I, I was thinking about, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, that because we, we were born to love. We were created to love a good story. But sometimes we just get so wrapped up in it that we stop seeing reality from fiction. As long as you know it's fiction, you're great. But my mom used to always be harping about the evil of soap operas. Those of you who went to her Bible studies, you remember the evil of soap operas. And... Um, where they were taking the average housewife. So that's why my sister and I had to sneak uh, to her house to watch uh, Laura's wedding to Luke on <laughs> General Hospital. 
and most of you don't know what that is, but there are some of us that do. <laughs> then I was thinking about how the internet is so full of false information. You know, you go to find out, like, you know, what to do for the common cold, and somebody will say, there's no remedy, and another one will say, you know, you know, gargle with hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> like, what in the world? You know, one of the things when you go to the doctor, they're like, do not read the internet. And you're like, but some of it's true. It's just so hard. Then we live with advertisements constantly, where products are always promising more than they can deliver just so they can get your money. You know, I, I have bought some things, I have to admit, on the internet that promised me youth, and my daughter, who's an esthetician, said, Mother, what are you doing with this machine? But he did lie to me. You know, but you, you, there's so many scans. And, you know, my mother-in-law, uh, somebody called her uh, two years ago. And she said, hello. And he said, hi. And she said, Michael? He says, yeah, this is Michael. Anyway, he stole $5,000 from her. And my mother-in-law does not have $5,000. But lies, right? Lies. And need I mention politicians who say anything to get elected? In an environment of lies, it's so easy to lose sight of truth or even to forget the truth. And we falsely assume because of these lies that God is on the defensive. You know, how many times are we trying to defend God? He is real. You know? But he's not on the defensive. This was the situation in Israel. Israel, if you remember, had succeeded or left uh, Judah. They had broken, they had split over a dispute concerning the dynasty of David, which had to do with paying taxes, of course. And the king of Israel, whose name was Jeroboam, was concerned that the people of Israel would return to Judah and to the dynasty of David because the temple of God was in Jerusalem. So he built two temples, one in Bethel and one in Dan, to tell the people, God in Judah, the God of the temple, Yahweh, he's not your God. This calf, this golden calf, this is the one that brought you out of the wilderness, that delivered you from Egypt. And he accredited all the accomplishments of Yahweh with this calf. Now, after this, the kingdom of Israel suffered upset after Jeroboam died. His son was assassinated. His son's name was Nadab. He was killed by a man named Basha. Basha's son was killed by a, a man named Zimri. Zimri then committed suicide by burning the palace down on himself. And then Israel had the choice of two kings, one named Omri, the other Tibni, but Omri was a general, so he did the right thing and just killed Tibni and became king. And his son was Ahab. So now you understand a little bit about Ahab's background. And Ahab, if it wasn't bad enough to worship a calf and to credit him with all the great things that God had done, 
something even worse began to happen, and they began to turn back to the Canaanite god of Baal. Why? Because Ahab married a Phoenician princess named Jezebel, and she brought with her some prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel started an all-out assault, a murderous rampage against the prophets of God. She even had the prophets of Baal eating at her table. Imagine the estate of the average citizen in Israel. You know, because in our lesson this week, you know, Elijah asked the people, you know, who will you serve? And they don't answer him. There's a reason for that. Their kings have told them that the God of their fathers isn't Yahweh, but a calf. And this worship is mixed with patriotism. In other words, if you worship Yahweh, then you're for Judah and not for the nation of Israel. That's how it had become. Though the title Israel is homage to Elohim, to El, they had forgotten their God especially since Jezebel is seeking to eradicate the memory of God completely from the land and minds and hearts of the people of Israel. The claims of Baal and his cohort, because Baal had a girlfriend named Asherah, was that they were the gods of fertility. You want rain? You need to pray to Baal. You want crops and prosperity on your land? You need to pray to Baal or to Asherah. You need to do your oblations. You need to do your sacrifices to Baal and Asherah. So who was Israel to believe? The God whose temple was all the way in Judah, their rival nation, the God whose prophets had been assassinated? Does that seem like a God that's powerful? When those who were preaching and serving him have died? The God who they only vaguely remember hearing of? The God of their fathers? Their fathers who are now dead and buried? Who is Yahweh? And about this time, Elijah or as they call him in Israel, Eleha, returns. I, I, I said that because I want you to notice that his name begins with God. God is Lord, Eleha. We have hallelujah. So he comes on the scene into this atmosphere, and he begins by a direct confrontation with Ahab telling Ahab that the true God, the God El, the one who is the God of Israel, is going to withhold the rain from Israel for three years. This word not only proves true, but it exposes the utter powerlessness of Baal's false promise of rain and prosperity. It shows that Baal has lied in his promises, in his character, and his word, and in his reality. It is proving him to be inauthentic. 
And yet, three years of drought and the people are still faltering. They're still wavering. Elijah is guided by God to hide for three years until the drought is about to end. And then he comes back to have an audience with Ahab. At this meeting, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel with the God of Israel. He tells Ahab, invite all of Israel to, the, to Mount Carmel for a contest. Now, Mount Carmel is a range of mountains that overlooks the Megiddo Valley and also um, overlooks the Jezreel Valley. So if you're in the top of the range where they believe Mount Carmel um, where this took place is actually the highest mountain in this range. When you stand there, you can see the Mediterranean Ocean. It, it looks like, as, in fact, it's closer than Catalina is to us. And you can see it. So this is, um, this is a vantage point from Mount Carmel where you can see all of Israel. You, today you can stand there and you can see all the farms and you can see vineyards and you can see, on a clear day, you can see, um, well, you can definitely see Mount Tabor, but you can see uh, Tel Aviv and Netanya and Caesarea on a clear day from Mount Carmel. So I think that this is purposeful, not only because Israel had worshipped there at one point, but because this is a good vantage point to see the land that was given to the people by God. Ahab and the prophets of Baal accept the challenge, and on a certain day, all Israel gathers. Now God's reputation is on the line. 450 prophets of Baal are present. The ground rules are simple. You know it. You read it. Each team has one bull that is to be cut in pieces. Each team is to place their bull on an altar. Neither team, I don't know why I say a team because Elijah's alone on his team, but nevertheless, it worked. Neither team is to light a fire under their sacrifice. Then each team is to call out to their God, to either Baal or Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire he is the true God. You see, this contest is not really between Baal and Elijah. It's between the false god, uh, Baal, and Yahweh. It's not between the prophets versus prophet. I think too many times we make the contest between us and flesh and blood. This is God's contest. This is God showing himself to be above the false Canaanite gods. Before the contest commences, Elijah has one more challenge. He directs this challenge to the people of Israel, those who are faltering between two opinions. These are crucial. This is a crucial decision Israel must make. Because what you believe about your God, the God you believe in, what you believe, affects every aspect of your life. If you have a false concept, even of Yahweh, if you think he's a wrathful God, just waiting for you to mess up, you know what's going to happen? You're going to live in condemnation, and you're going to be self-righteous, and you're going to be judgmental. 
But if you believe that your God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, then you are going to be compassionate. Then you are going to grieve when you see people that are stuck in darkness. So what you believe about God affects every aspect of your life. It affects your emotional uh, being, how you react, how you feel, your social wellness, who you associate with and how you treat others. It affects your physical demeanor, how you deal with stress and the decisions of life. It affects your mental demeanor, your thought patterns, your stress levels. It affects your practice, what you do in life and what you don't do, and your priorities, what you invest in and what you don't invest in, where you spend the majority of your time. Any of you ever a little put off when your phone, your watch just says, you had, you know, 30 hours on the internet, and you're like, no, I can't believe I spent that much time on my computer. What you invest in, where is the majority of your time? How long will you falter between two opinions? Elijah said, if the Lord is God, follow him. Duh. If Paul is God, follow him. You know, I think that if we said that to other people, if your God's real, go for it. But if it's my God, Yahweh, that's real, listen to me. Follow the God that is true. Elijah gives Team Baal every advantage. Remember, he's alone. They are 450 in number. They have the first choice of the bull. They have the first time spot. They have the longest time allotment. And as we know, the prophets of Baal, they cut the bull into pieces. They lay the bull on the altar. And then they begin to pray, to cry out from morning all the way to noon. And we're told they were leaping about the altar. What a spectacle. What To see 450 men. <laughs> You know, and who knows? Maybe they thought, oh, our altar's not good enough. Let's, let's make it a little more ornate. You know, Baal is upset with our altar, you know, and they're bouncing around and jumping up and down and gyrating, trying to get Baal to answer. But we read, there was no voice. No one answered. Not a voice, nothing. Then they became more frenzied as as morning turned into noon, more anxious. In fact, we're told that they gashed themselves until they were bleeding profusely, as was their custom. Did anyone catch that phrase? Didn't that just like, whoa, this is how you serve your God? You gash yourself? You have a God that wants to see you hurt or be in pain? I know of some Christians who have that misguided idea that God likes to see them in pain. Nothing is further than the truth. Did anyone come to Jesus for healing? And he said, no, I want you to stay in this pain. This is good for you. You know, Paul said, uh, Paul was different. His, God's grace was to be overarching in his life, and it was, he had that thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. 
But I know people, I, I read of this woman, Madame Guillaume, who really bothers me. Kathy loves her. But she put rocks in her shoes. Kathy Gilbert, just in case you're mixed up. She put rocks in her shoes so that every time she stepped, it would be painful. Uh, she would always build crosses because she wanted to be crucified like Jesus. And you're thinking, you know what? That's not godly. That's sadistic. Now, don't talk to Kathy. She has a whole different thing about it. But you'll notice Kathy does not have any rocks in her shoes. But, you know, that's a misguided. This was, these were the mystics. They didn't have the word of God. They were trying to serve God as best they could. And I get that. And she did love God and she loved Jesus. But this is what I'm saying. Our God is not asking us to gash ourselves or to inflict harm. I know of uh, monks in the uh, second, uh, first century that used to uh, flagellate themselves because they thought that was pleasing God to beat themselves. That's not our God. That's not our God. I think about the Sadducees in uh, Mark chapter 11 when they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, there was this man, and he had this wife, and then he died, and so she married his brother, and he died, so she married his brother, 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 he died, so she married his brother. My dad used to always say, somebody should have checked the coffee. <laughs> and then they said, okay, now, whose wife will she be? in the resurrection, because she had all seven brothers as a husband. You know, like, now we gotcha. We have this fictitious situation. What are you going to do? And the Lord looked at them. Jesus said, you're greatly mistaken. There are two things that you lack. One is you do not understand the scriptures. And two, you don't know the power of God. You see, we get mistaken often because we do not understand the scriptures. You know, we're not called to cut off our hands or to um, gouge out an eye just because we're falling to sin. But what Jesus is saying, he's speaking um, in hyperbole. He is saying we are to have such an aversion to sin that we are to be willing to do without, uh, to not go certain places, not listen to certain things that would make us stumble because sin is a thief and a robber and a murderer. That's what Jesus is saying. You need to understand the scriptures. But with that understanding, you've got to bring the power of God. Our God is powerful. They gash themselves. Then Elijah seems to goad them. Cry louder. Maybe your God can't hear. Maybe your God is preoccupied, meditating, deep in thought, busy, on a journey, or sleeping. NLT says maybe he's using the restroom. <laughs> Elijah is drawing the attention of the people to the utter folly, emptiness, irrationality of the worship of Baal. Look at this. Are you seeing this? Do you, ever, do you ever feel like saying that? Are you saying that? My, my mom one time, I don't know why I'm on a K streak, but I am. My mom one time, um, I was in high school, 
And my mother and I would have fights about what was modest and what wasn't for me to wear, right? So we're in um, Savon's drugstore, and there's a man looking at Playboy magazine. Older man, he's really awful looking, and he's going, <sighs> So my mom brings me over, and she's like, do you see that? Do you want a man doing that about you? Do you see that? And I'm like, no, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that. But my mom was famous for like, do you see that? And that's what Elijah is doing for the people. Do you see this? You really want this? These are the spiritual leaders of Baal. Do you want to leap? Do you want to gash? Do you see where this path is taking you? Do you see the end? Do you see this? Now the sun is about to set, and still there has been no voice, no one answering, and no one paying attention. They've exhausted themselves in this frenzy. Now it's Elijah's turn. And I love this, that Elijah says to the people, come, come near. Come is a word that we hear all throughout the Bible. God is always inviting us to come. In Isaiah, he says, come now, let us reason together. When Andrew and John saw Jesus, uh, and they were following him, and Jesus says, what do you want? They said, "Uh, we want to know where you're staying. He says, come, come and see. Jesus said in John 11, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come, come. So Elijah says, come. Come, come in close. Come see the work of your God. I think part of this is to see, see, there's no gimmicks. There's no elaboration. Come, come see the simplicity of this. And then we know that he begins to pick up the stones that were broken down. Who broke it down? Who broke down the altar? Could have been neglect. Could have been the prophets of Baal. But From the time that Israel went in to possess the land, God assigned the Levites to live among the different tribes of Israel. The the Levitical priesthood was not given a, a territory or kind of like a state like the other tribes were giving a state. You've got, you know, this area which included Jerusalem was for Judah, next to it was the allotment of Simeon. Uh, Dan was originally on the coast near Ashkelon, but they moved up to the north um, near the border of what is now Lebanon. But they had these kind of what I would call states and boundaries that each tribe was given this state or this boundary area, but not Levi, not the tribe of Levi, because God wanted Levi all over Israel all over, to keep the spiritual morale, the awareness of Yahweh in every single tribe. In fact, God says in Deuteronomy, look, if it's too far for you, if you have something you want to give it to God, a sacrifice, and it's too far to go to Jerusalem, then I want you to find the local priest and sacrifice. He'll sacrifice it, and you will share the sacrifice. 
So there would be places, a sacrifice throughout Israel to keep the people in remembrance of their God. And as we read, there were 12 stones, a stone that represented each of the tribes of Israel. Now, what's interesting about this, too, is only two tribes really stayed in Judah. Of course, that was the tribe of Judah and the Levites that fled there when they realized their lives weren't safe in Israel. But 10 of the tribes, the majority of the tribes are in Israel. Now, there's a sense of identity with each of these stones, just like the stones that the high priest wore on his, on his breastplate, each one representing one of the tribes of Israel. So he would always have those tribes first and foremost on his heart and realize that he was representing them every time he went into sacrifice or into the Holy of Holies. So each of these stones... I mean, it was an identity, like, that's my family's stone. That's my tribe's stone. So now the people are in the audience, and they're seeing this one stone. This is, this is the tribe of Simeon. This is the tribe of Gad. This is the tribe of Naphtali. This is the, the tribe of Iskar. This is the tribe of Manasseh. This is the tribe of Reuben. They would begin to not only identify themselves, remembering their identity, but who they belong to. So he gathers these 12 stones, and he builds a simple altar. It's just stacked. There's no mortar. There's no pre-cut stones. And as if it wasn't enough, to have the later time slot to be alone, to have to build his own altar by himself. He digs a trench around the altar. Now, we're told that the trench can hold about three gallons. This is not a huge trench. It's probably about six inches deep. You know how much three gallons are. You get gallons of milk. It's not that much. But he, he digs a trench around it, probably about three to six inches deep. I don't know how wide. And then he calls for water. Where did they get the water? Everyone's like, don't they have a shortage of water? Well, they have wells, which they can get water. They just didn't have any streams or running water. But also the Mediterranean is not that far away. It could have been salt water. But he calls for four jars of water. Do you know that those jars, now remember, the trench holds about three gallons. A jar would hold um, somewhere around 20 gallons. So they're pouring four jars. Then he says, let's do it again. Four more jars. Then four more jars of water. Until it says that the pieces of the bowl were saturated, the wood was saturated, it was running down, and the water was overflowing the trench. Have any of you tried to start a fire when your wood is just slightly damp? Isn't it just terrible? It's so smoky. It just doesn't want to start. I have had that experience a lot and smoked out my whole house on more than one occasion. Elijah then prays, 
such a simple prayer. This is such a good reminder for us because, you know, sometimes we think we have to get frenzied or elaborate in our prayers. His prayer is so simple. It's not long. It's not dramatic. It's not frenzied. It's simply Lord God or Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Again, reminding all of Israel, this is where you came from. This is the reason you are. You all share the great-great-grandfather. You are in the land because of the promises of Yahweh to Abraham and then kept to Isaac. And then notice he doesn't use the name Jacob, but Israel, the God-given name. It's a reminder of the God their fathers worshipped, a reminder of their origin, their namesake, Israel, ruled by God. Elijah has four requests for God. Let it be known you are God in Israel. Let it be known I am your servant. Let it be known that I have done all these things at your word. You instigated this. This is not my idea. Let the people know. This is not my idea. This is all you. And then hear me, O Lord, hear me. Elijah concludes his prayer with the purpose of this contest, that the people might know that you are the Lord God, that you are the one seeking to turn their hearts back to you. God, Yahweh, is the one who is seeking Israel, not Israel seeking Yahweh. Isn't that incredible? We have the God that is seeking us. As, um, oh, I read a book and I can't remember. It's the book we would see Jesus. I can't remember the author's name. But he said it is not the hungry seeking the bread, but it is the bread seeking the hungry. It is not the thirsty seeking water, but it is the living water seeking the thirsty. That's our God. Unlike Baal or the other false religions where the people have to seek after their God, Yahweh, our God, is seeking after his people in their hearts. Note the thing that Elijah didn't ask for. What did he not ask for? Very good. Fire. Thank you, the three of you that answered and were brave. How long will the rest of you falter between two opinions, either fire or no fire? He didn't ask for fire. Not one part. Fire was God's business. He just asked God, show them your God. That's all I'm asking for. Show them your God. And God did the rest. What an incredible response to Elijah's simple prayer. The fire fell immediately. It consumed the sacrifice, the bowl, the wood, the stones, the dust, the water. Can, can you imagine? Boom, psh, burn spot. And it's like, where did it go? It's all gone. And the people seeing this fell on their face and began to say, it's the Lord. He won. <laughs> the winner of the contest is Yahweh. <laughs> Yahweh is God. Yahweh. God. 
you know, and as Trish said in our meeting, I don't think this happened two times. I think this was this realization. What have I been doing with my life? What have I been seeking? Yahweh is God. You ever have those moments? Like, Lord, what have I been thinking because of the lies? I, I had this uh, class I taught um, on Eve for the girls at the Bible college. And I had them write down three lies that they had heard that week. And so they came and they brought their papers. And I said, I want you to read your lies. And they're like, what? I said, no, I want, I want you to read out loud the lies that you heard. And this one girl, she read it. God doesn't really love me. Nobody really likes me. And the other one. And you know what the other girls did? They said, that's a lie. And another one said, I, I heard those same lies. Now we know it's lies. And another one. And what we realized in that room is we'd all heard the same lies. The problem was, is those precious girls had begun to believe them, had begun to identify with a lie. You see, Israel had begun to identify with a lie that the Yahweh was not God, but all was God. If you want prosperity, if you want to make it in life, you've got to serve Baal. They had begun to believe the lies. So then Elijah said to the people, seize the prophets of Baal. You deal with them. You deal with the lies. You deal with the liars. You deal with it. You deal with those who sought to lead you into darkness and away from your God. You deal with it. And it said that they, they killed the prophets of Baal right down at the Wadi of Kushan. They killed them. And it might seem harsh to us, like, oh, these are people that gash themselves, that encourage child sacrifice, that were leading Israel. Israel was in greater jeopardy than they realized because of these prophets of Baal. In this world of lies that we live in, have you forgotten your God? Do you ever come to a worship service and all of a sudden hear a song and go, oh, that's my God. Like I did when I was dancing with Remy. Like, oh my goodness, I have a God. And he loves me. And he's good. And he wants to work. It's so easy to lose sight of truth. I'm thinking, and we're living in a world of lies. And I thought, isn't that the BG? So I look it up and no, it's living in a world of fools. It just shows you how much I know. But too easily we forget the power, the passion, and the person of our God. We live in a time where there is an all-out assault against God. There's people that call themselves the new atheists. There's the new morality. There's the constant criticisms of the Bible. And there are people even in our, who used to be in our own ranks that now call themselves deconstructionists who are dismantling their own faith. 
I don't think they ever had a faith to dismantle. If it can be dismantled, it was never built. But it can often feel like we are on the retreat or on the losing side, that we're all alone against 450 prophets of Baal. As believers, we seem to have all the disadvantage. We get less news coverage, and when we do get news coverage, it's usually not very good. We have more enemies. We have broken churches. We have Christians who are faltering between two opinions. We are outnumbered by unbelievers. And we're even outlawed in some circles. In this atmosphere, we need constant reminders and catalysts to the reality, the power, the person, and the greatness of Jesus. And one of these things we need is worship. We need worship. You know, Char was saying on Wednesday night, he was quoting my brother Chuck, that worship is prayer. But worship is also revelatory. It reminds us of who our God is and what he's done. I love the Jesus People movement. Um, Terry will remember this. Is that love song used to sing their testimony. You know, it wasn't like a, a, a love song was like, you know, we walked in sin and darkness, and this was where I was. Uh, and one time they were told not to do Christian songs at a venue, and they're like, oh, okay. And they just did their songs because that was their life, that was their heart. You know, we need to worship. We need to hear the songs again that are telling us how great and how glorious our God is. We need to sing these truths. Singing takes us to an, another level. It, it kind of brings out our subconscious, our underconscious. We need to dance to these truths, amen? Amen. I mean, there's something about dancing to these truths. I'm telling you, I did it with a two-year-old. It was amazing. I can loan him. No. We need communion. And I'm talking about we need to take the elements. I'm so glad we do communion every Sunday. Because we need to always remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Like, don't forget me. Israel forgot their God in the Psalms over and over again. They forgot their God. They forgot their God. They forgot their God. They forgot their God. They forgot what he's like. They forgot what he does. They forgot what he did. We also, we're no better than Israel. We forget our God. We forget that he cares, that he's interested, that he's part of it. So we need communion, a time of remembering how much our God loves us. We need to take the cup and remember that Jesus didn't pay for just one of our sins, but all of our sins. I love to just like even stick my tongue in it and get every little bit, you know? I am forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing on my slate. Nothing against me. He nailed it to the cross, and I bear it no more. We need this time of remembering who our God is and what he has done for us through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We need the word. We need to remember his person, his promises, his purposes and plans. We need to understand the scriptures. We, we can't have just a, a once-over 
We need to go deep and we need understanding in the word. I love in Luke chapter 24 where it says, and Jesus opened their understanding to the scriptures. We need our understanding open to the scriptures. We need fellowship. We need to be stirred up and provoked by other believers. Why am I saying this? Because in the last four years, we've been stripped of all of this. It's like we've had the prophets of Baal ruling everything and trying to keep us from all of this, trying to eradicate from our memory that we serve a great God. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, these aren't helpful suggestions if you want to grow in your faith. These are necessities. We need all of it. We, you know, Elijah didn't want to be alone. He cried out, we'll see it in a couple of weeks. We weren't meant to be alone. We're meant to be in community, in family. Remember, Israel was to remember their family connection to God. Even now, God is not on the defensive. Will you say it with me? God is not on the defensive. He's not on the run. Like, tell me when it's safe to come out. <laughs> yeah, peeking behind a curtain like, is it safe? A cloud? God is not on the defensive. He is on the offensive. And he is seeking even now to bring the hearts of his people back to him. Here's his purpose. Here's what it's all about. It's not about the fire showing, I'm more powerful. It's not about that. Or as one firecracker said to the other firecracker, my pop is bigger than your pop. It's not about that. It's about God going after the hearts. He wants our hearts. And even now, he is seeking to bring the hearts of his people back to him. Our God is the God who answers by fire. As John said, when the Messiah is come, I'm baptizing with water, but he will baptize you with the fire. And you know where the fire is to hit? Our hearts. He wants to set our hearts on fire. One of my prayers this week as we're seeking as a church the direction and everything as we're interceding for the community and the world and the church, I'm asking God bring faith and passion back to your people. Let them believe in you, believe you, and let them love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, let it start with me. Let it begin with me. Paul said to the Corinthians, you seek a sign of God being great among you, but I say he is in you. If you will just rebuild the altar, if you will just lay the sacrifice, if you'll just give him that time, the fire of God will fall on you. I'm going to end with this. Um, I do a podcast, and in the podcast, I talk about women worth knowing, women who just believe they're God, and God did amazing things. And this last week, the podcast was on a woman um, called Josephine Butler, and everything was against Josephine. She was a wonderful, 
Christian woman who lived in England. But at the time she lived, she was brilliant. Women weren't allowed to be educated. They weren't allowed to be educated, can you imagine? So a woman who lost her husband or who lost you know, finances, the only opportunities open to them to make money were prostitution. That was it. I mean, if you are fallen on your luck. And Josephine felt so awful about this, she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about this. And she's known as an activist because she uh, began to rally for women's education, for women's training. She even opened training schools for women where they were taught to sew, they were taught different languages so they could uh, serve as translators, uh, they were taught to uh, read and write so they could become secretaries. She opened up so many opportunities. And not only that, but then she employed them. And she started businesses where it was run by women. And this is like the 1800s, late 1800s. I mean, this just was not done during her time, but she did it. She did it. She went through so much persecution. At one point, they burned down her house because of what she was doing. Uh, they tried to arrest her because of what she was doing. And, you know, this isn't just, you know, uh, just your you know, average housewife. Her husband was one of the professors at Cambridge and then later Oxford. Uh, she was well-known. She was in um, the upper class of society. And yet she persevered and persevered until she got the colleges to allow the education of women and until she got them to repeal laws uh, that allowed prostitution to start at the ages as young as 10. And she got England to get rid of those laws by sheer perseverance and prayer. And you know what she said? She said, one woman and God is a majority. One prophet and Yahweh is a majority. And that's what we learn. God is after our hearts. He wants to put his fire in our hearts that we might be that one plus God, that we might be that majority together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Elijah. We thank you for the example that you've set before us. And we pray, Father, right now, and I'm just going to take a time, keep your eyes closed, but if you feel maybe that's you and you feel like, I've forgotten my God, I've just forgotten. I feel like the fire in my heart is just a little bit quenched or the wood on my altar is, is damp and it's not lighting. I want you just to raise your hand and let's pray together. Just something about just confessing. I want to be more passionate for you, Jesus. Just works. Thank you. Father, you see these hands. And Lord, I, I pray that we would no longer falter between two opinions. But your fire would fall on our hearts and that we would serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love you extremely. In Jesus' name, amen.